didn't think that thing would get 10 feet. Yum. Ouch. Data redacted. Welcome to We Talk Games, the weekly podcast where we talk games. I am your host, Wiggly, and the booth is no one. Flying solo. Solo in my... I got shorts on. The date is July 22nd, 2019, in the year of our gourd. Lord, whatever happened to Lord? Is she releasing music anymore? 100% game talk, 0% filler. We talk games. We talk games. Video Gamer News Show. 100% game talk, 0% filler. Only on We Talk Games. We've been busy behind the scenes, working on negotiations. Thank you for your negotiations. They weren't enough. So here we are back again. I'm going to fire up the whatever machine this is and get back into 100% game talk, 0% filler. We talk games. This show is stacked. So let's not start. Let's go. I still got stuff to say. Some little serious aside here. Uh, Remember when I always say Patreon and ring the bell and all that other type of stuff? Well, there actually is a Patreon now, and it's my personal Patreon. It is Wiggly Check on Patreon. Wiggly Check, I'm only asking for your subscriptions because if I don't receive them, I'm going to die. There's all different types of tiers starting at one single dollar. That's only $12 a year. And that affords me half a pack of guitar strings per year. Thank you for your donations. They might be enough. And I also want to tell you about the Hot-Blooded Challenger Club. Just go to obeycube.com. Leave off the C for savings and replace it with a K for cube. That's obeycube.com or go to patreon.com. And his handle is one rad T. As in T-shirt, T-E-E. Not as in the tea that you drink or in Mr. T like that. It's T-E-E for his rad T-shirts. Check it out now at obeycube.com. And don't forget, wiggly check or I'll die. Maybe not right away, but at least within the next 50 years. This is the only second time I'm going to turn on this machine and it's the hum is very intimidating as it was last time, but I'm assured by RIP Team, Rosenstein's Information Technology and Enriched Elbow Macaroni, as well as We Talk Games Committee for Podcast Conformity and Listener Integration, otherwise known as WECAC Flip Please, that this machine is perfectly safe. Just came from Russia, actually. And this is the new Rosenstein's Magic Suck Genie 2000 Release Candidate 32. We're gonna fire it up here and see if we can get a corpuscular apparition of Jason War. Let's try to get him back in the studio. Okay, it's whizzing. Magic suck. Hey, Jason, I can see you. You're corpuscular. Whoa, where are we? 
You never know. All I know is that the last time you were in the studio was in December of 2009. So we're almost at the 10-year anniversary. Yes, it's been a long time. In just a few short 10 months, <laughs> we'll be at two years in another a lot, year. A lot has happened in 10 years. It has? Oh, I thought this might have been a little bit boring. I was going to just... Is, yeah, I mean, this is like just like Rip Van Winkle. Like I've, been, I've been asleep for 10 years. I've grown a really long beard, as you can see. Mm, mm. <laughs> and how's your grass? Still uh, going to seed? <laughs> that was the last uh, do debacle. We, do, do we talk, yeah, we talked about that. Um, yeah, so I've actually uh, since moved away twice. <laughs> I now live in a place uh, in California where apparently are no mowing ordinances, or if there are mowing ordinances, they're not enforced. There's lots of people with natural looking landscapes here in davis california so oh good um so i don't need to fight anything here although um on our property it's so shady in the front that there is no grass uh-huh. so we we don't have to mow out there it's like ivy and uh stuff oh. and so oh, ground uh, cover well yeah just the house came with all this ivy and uh ground cover i mean we do some weeding out there i mm. should say my wife uh, does some weeding <laughs> i probably wouldn't care that's it so we don't even have to mow out there um since then instead of growing your grass long i heard that you try to make your own money is that right <laughs> oh that was also a very long time ago oh, that um, was a long time ago okay yeah so um it was in that same town upstate new york um that town has a it's, you know gosh it's way out in the country it's like a five hour drive to the nearest airport down in syracuse okay um, oh, wow. so way oh, way oh. way up in upstate new york almost near the border of canada up near montreal yes yes um so so this tiny little town up there um, Potsdam, New York, uh, has about 10,000 people or did back then and, um, has two universities in town though, Clarkson University and SUNY Potsdam. So there's kind of a real kind of academic flavor to the town and yeah. also a strong back to the land movement. So all these people mm. in the sixties and seventies who were fleeing, there was urban flight and so on. Uh, a lot of young hippie type people came into upstate New York where the land was cheap, bought kind of homesteads, built straw bale houses, solar-powered houses, this kind of stuff out in the country. So there was a kind of a, a pretty strong vibe of that kind of thing going on, sort of local culture, local food, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so they were interested in, in having a local currency to kind of go along with that culture. I and, see. And the people who started the project were kind of didn't finish it, and it kind of landed in my lap, and so I finished it. <laughs> I see. And uh, we got a local – there was a local artist who had drawn these – what the bills looked like, and I helped make the art – helped get it printed – and help get it into circulation and so on. So it didn't really do anything. I mean, people kind of thought of it as a novelty, and it kind of stuck around for a couple of years, maybe. Um, and uh, it's not currently operating anymore, as far as I'm aware. We talk games, video game review show, one hundred percent game talk, zero percent filler, only on We Talk Games. Come on, We Talk Games. It's just like a type of barter, I guess, right? Like a yeah, note for yeah. barter. The idea, which I now think is sort of economically misguided, uh-huh. is that you, want, you, that you want to keep money local. Somehow, oh, yes, I our, see. our problem in a small town like this is that money is leaving our town. You know, when every mm. time someone goes to shop at Walmart, mm. dollars are sent to Arkansas, right? Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, and, and you know, therefore, we don't have enough money locally, and our economy kind of grinds to a halt. I don't think that's really true at all, and I don't think... Um, <laughs> that keeping money local actually does anything. I mean, even if you manage to do it, I guess it would just cause local inflation. Foregoing imports, right. because we're trying to keep money local, yeah. that just makes us poorer, 
right? Like, yes. Like, yeah. So anyway, it's because people confuse money and wealth all the time, I think. And I think that money is this means of exchange. It isn't itself wealth. Having more of it in a vacuum kind of doesn't really do anything. You can go back into into history and see videos of or, or photo, photographic evidence and film reels of people shoveling money into their furnaces mm-hmm. to keep warm. Sure, sure. <laughs> yes. Know? So yes, it's, it's people. it's easy to get those things confused until something like that happens. And then you realize, well... You know, yeah, it just gets not, devalued so much that it's not. Yeah, worth no, but I mean, just that it's not. It isn't wealth right. in and of itself, right. right? And so, you know, if you get confused and say poor people are poor because they don't have enough money, <laughs> that's not true. Yeah. I mean, like right. just giving everybody more money doesn't solve anybody's problem. Right. You know, it's just kind of. A, <laughs> this is not a plug, but um, we're not sponsored by them. But have you heard of Aspiration? It's a mm, new no. new bank that doesn't invest in oil or big pharma or anything like that. So like an, an ethical, uh, an ethical yeah. hedge fund or something. An ethical bank, yes. Yeah. They give money to charity. You can, if you want to pay a monthly fee you, as a tip, you can. Yeah, it's called Aspiration, aspiration.com. We're trying to somehow set up systems where we're encouraging, I guess, otherwise irrational behavior. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if it's not rational to do these things or it's not rational to give to these charities or whatever, and freeloading is the, you know, uh, somehow we're promising to be better than rational. <laughs> like, I, I'm be- much better yeah, than I, what I guess we should I'm, normally be. I'm trying to figure out how we could set up situations where the rational thing is the good thing. Right. <laughs> I feel like this sort of like appeal to our better natures or something is somehow not sustainable or something in the long run. And as a couple of bad actors get in there and start mm. taking an unfair advantage for themselves, then everyone sure. else looks at them and say, Hey, why should I be the sucker who's doing the right thing? <laughs> True. Um, and it's interesting. You, you brought up tipping, right? Like yes. tipping, you know, the, yes, bank, yes. the bank is, you can give the bank a tip. Yeah. Um, and, and, and tipping is an interesting case, right? Cause I, I think as far as I've seen, I was listening to an economics podcast. So this stuff is on my mind. Right now. Uh, but uh, you know, tipping is this, is this voluntary act, right? It's mm-hmm. irrational. Yeah, uh, it is not in your own self-interest, especially if you're in a restaurant that you'll never return to. You're in some other country visiting, right? Yet almost everybody does it, as far as I've seen. Even when um, you get bad service, sometimes. Yeah, I mean, like, oh gosh, I've had horrible service, and I'm like, <laughs> let's, you know, let's not leave a tip. And my wife is like, no, you can't. It's not. No, it's just not. You know, it's just not done. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, and it's interesting, but you know, there's also a very face-to-face kind of component, and it's a one-on-one kind of thing. Even though everyone's acting irrationally there, and there would be self-benefit to defecting from the system of tipping, there's enough sort of individual pressure from the social situation that you're in, the dirty look that you'll get when you're standing up for the table or walking away <laughs> from the waiter, right? Somehow it sort of overcomes the sort of things that would be present in a more anonymous situation, a more sort of group situation, a more... But then where, again, you, know, you and I sort of work for tips. I have tried. Yeah. <laughs> you, you may successfully work for tips. I, I did oh, not. I didn't I mean, successfully I was, work for tips. I, no, it, it was... <laughs> I was never, I was but, never able but to... But we do, though, I mean... I was never able. Yes, I do receive tips still to this day, but I was never able to fully support my family doing that. Yeah, it's um, it's very difficult. We talk games, video game review show, one hundred percent game talk, zero percent filler, only on We Talk Games. Come on, We Talk Games. I have at least one friend who busks for a living and you hear him talk about coming back from the farmer's market or whatever. And he's like, yeah, I sat there and played accordion for an hour and a half and I have $200. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, what? Wow. 
But, you know, it's a face-to-face interaction. He's providing a very direct, very measurable service to these people who are walking by the farmer's market and hearing this beautiful European, almost like French alley kind of accordion music. I see. It, it enchants their evening. They see him. He's relatively good-looking friendly guy who's the nice presence there you know there's all these factors that if i'm sitting here with a tip jar online all that stuff is and and anybody walking by who hears the beautiful music feels <laughs> like raised up by it sure tries to avoid eye contact <laughs> yeah because they're not going to leave any money and and sees other people <laughs> doing it you know it's just like there's all these factors there that just aren't present online right so, sure sure let's talk and- about sensibilities your games have no discernible sensibility. As far as when I look at your titles that you create, I don't say, oh, a Japanese influence there, European influence there. I don't say, oh, that's Zaxxon. You've done shooters, but I, I never say, you know, that's uh, obviously Time Pilot, something influenced. There's nothing like a Jason Rohrer game. Where the hell did it come from? You know, you know that it just came out of someone's complete imagination. <laughs> I, was, I was waiting there. Came out of someone's... <laughs> <laughs> Match game. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, I, I guess I, part of it is that I try, I try to do that on purpose, right? So, I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm looking at all the different things that are out there. I'm looking at the way things look. I'm looking at the kinds of gameplay that have been around, the kind of graphics that have been used and so on. I'm trying to steer away from that a little bit and intentionally trying to dig untilled ground Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. because I guess I feel like, okay, the stuff takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort and energy on my part. What's the point if I'm just cloning something that already exists? Sure. Right? Like, like what well, you know, why well, even as a creator or whatever is spending my time, it's just like, ah, why is that even worth it? I love the game Pac-Man or Ms. Pac-Man. You know, I, I love the game Dig Dug, for example. Yes. But Dig Dug is great as it is. I don't need to make another Dig Dug. Right. <laughs> why bother? I could just go to go play Dig Dug, and so could everyone else. Yeah. So, and this is also interesting in terms of like different types of creators, different approaches, even to their own body of work. I'm trying, for the most part, to make something totally different, even from the things that I've made. Uh, uh-huh. And so you can see if you look across, even if you looked at screenshots over the course of my 15 uh, year career here, they change. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. You know, they don't even necessarily look like visually like part of the same catalog or something. And so where I try to come up with an analogy for that is like, I'm really more of a Picasso guy than I am like a Monet guy or a Chuck Close guy. Or, uh-huh. you know, there, there are these people who who come up with, or Jackson, I mean, Jackson Pollock, at least in terms of the works that are widely known, are all kind of of a similar style, right? Yes, yes. I, I really like the old Jackson Pollock a lot better, actually. The stuff before he did splatter painting, some of those paintings are amazing. The sort of abstract expressionist stuff where he's using brushes, right? Yes. <laughs> um, and most people don't know that work, but you know he did change styles very dramatically at some point in the middle of his career. And then his style sort of became known. And if you wanted a Jackson Pollock, you wanted one of those splatter paintings. There's even a scene in the Pollock movie where I think Clement Greenberg the critic, is visiting Pollock's apartment and he looks at some painting and he says, oh, this is great. Do 10 more just like it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it was Greenberg or maybe actually it might have been his, um, his, ma- his manager or his gallerist or whatever. But anyway, you know, the idea that you know, once you, settle, you crack the ice and you've got some formula that the public is it expecting you yeah. to, to sort of, well, especially as an artist who's making one-off kind of things that are sold as individual pieces, like every collector wants something that seems like it's your style right Mm -hmm. and so someone like chuck close literally you know kind of refined this facial portrait style and made slight variations on it over time to the point where now he's making these faces with these big sort of impressionistic circles 
that you know, if you look at it from very far away, you can see the person's face, but up close, it it looks like a grid of circles. Right. Um, but he's always been doing these large facial portraits, and toward the end of his career, it's with these circles, and that's Chuck Close, right? Like you, you can instantly recognize it. Mm-hmm. You can instantly know it's a Chuck Close or a knockoff if you see somebody else doing it. <laughs> right. And if you're collecting Chuck Close or you want to check close, that's what you want. Picasso, on the other hand, geez, Louise, look at all the different things, yeah. you know. Go back in time to something that, you know, like some early painting from his youth, like Boy with a Pipe, you know, and then through Cubism and all the other things and some of the sculptures that he made. And then late in his career, it was basically dirty pencil sketches. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, yeah, it's like totally this huge range of a mind forever voyaging, basically. Like, you know, I'm never going to settle down in this one place and get stuck. And in terms of filmmakers, I look at someone like Lars von Trier, who's like always going to surprise you, always going to do something crazy and different than he's ever done. Hey, he just made a film about a serial killer. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, previously he made some film that was like looked almost like a stage play with like chalk outlines for the buildings. That was Dogville, right, with Nicole Kidman, where you know it's, it's about a, a small town, but it's kind of done in, almost like it's done on a theater stage. Then he also made a musical with Bjork, right? <laughs> It's like, you know, okay, you just you never know where he's going to go next, right? Um, Not like John Ford has an incredible eye, and you can learn all about filmmaking from watching a John Ford movie. But right, right. Y- you can tell that it's John Ford because of um, spatial perspective and, um, and framing a shot and, uh, you know, layout. So, yeah, right. of course. Yeah, like that. Well, that's the auteur theory, right? That, you know, you can see the. The, the author's sort of signature on even in something like a film where there's the author's hand is not even in there right in that mm. it's actors it's physical locations physical lighting machines and all these other things and a film stock but these french guys in like the you know i don't know it was like 60s or something were like saying hey look no 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 we can see we can see hitchcock in here mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know even if we didn't see the credits we could see that see his hand here and the way that the camera moved and the choices that he made about how the how the camera you know, was set in the scene relative to the actors and everything else therefore the the filmmaker is an author right like we can see the authorship here that's interesting and, and really important as well uh, although i think in video games it's much more clear right like it's not, <laughs> It's not like the, the uh, film had this issue of sort of the invisible author, right? Like, who is even the author of this film? That's a collaborative thing with all these different people. You know, is uh, uh, <laughs> is this actor is 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 uh, Clint Eastwood kind of one of the authors of this film? He's right. His face is freaking on the screen the entire time. Well, when will you begin using the Unreal Engine in your games? <laughs> so I can have that shiny look. Uh, you know, rim, uh, so I need different. more rim lighting. I need more rim lighting. <laughs> That would be kind of amazing, uh, taking like uh, one of your older titles and and <laughs> making it, you know, muscle men and half clad women and things like this. I mean, I do love that stuff. Sure, right? sure. So, so, so you know, when I I, I was always kind of complaining about PUBG, Player Unknown's Battlegrounds, as being sort of I don't know too buggy and too crappy and too kind of like thrown together for a game of that magnitude, right? Somehow, it's like ah, oh, geez, this oh, is Fortnite. Doesn't... Well, no, I mean, <laughs> Player Unknown's Battlegrounds. And so then when I played P- Fortnite, I was like, oh, man, this is like the AAA version of this, I guess I felt, right? <laughs> Even um, though you know, that itself, too, is glitchy, though, too. Really? I guess I haven't seen too much. I mean, not... Oh, maybe I don't know anything. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, uh, yeah, I don't know. It just it just felt like, oh, this is... Well, okay, so the other thing is, and I didn't realize it at the time when playing Player Unknown's Battlegrounds at first, is that it's a simulation game or a war sim kind of... It oh. comes from that pedigree, and that means that they include inertia if you're holding a gun. 
<laughs> so if you're holding a gun and it's heavy, it takes a little bit of time when you actually move your muscles to actually swing the gun around. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. so that gives this very like almost like network laggy kind of feel that I didn't recognize because I've never played sim combat sim kind of games before. I see. But I'm like, oh, I turn my mouse and then <laughs> like, you know, c- clearly a quarter of a second later, my aim kind of settles. And it literally felt like network lag to me. So that felt like crap. I'm used to Quake, you know? And, yeah, yeah, and so yeah, when yeah, I got yeah. into Fortnite, it was cartoonish. It wasn't a sim. And it just felt like tight and, and like no lag. And like everything felt so like, everything polished. Everything really fast. Really fast, polished, perfect, shiny. <laughs> Rim lighting, cartoonish little like weird warped houses and stuff. It just, I don't know. There's something I, I really like about it. Um, people love to trash Fortnite, but that's, I think, just because it's number one, right? Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Uh, there's some things that are under embargo that I can't talk about that game. So I, I can't mention what I was going to mention next. Uh, well, we're, I mean, I, you know, if I had more time, I would definitely, I could definitely plan, spend all day playing Fortnite, you know? Okay. I mm, guess I got to give it a try. I only saw oh, videos you even of tried people it. stuck in things. <laughs> no, I haven't tried it. It looks too hard for me. It oh, it is hard. hard. It's like, I got to do things. Why? I don't want to. It is very hard. <laughs> yeah, I want to lose myself in the game. I don't want to. Well, well, yeah, the other funny thing about that game is that I've never gotten first place in Fortnite out of the 100 people, mm. but I can pretty much, if I want to, every single time, even though I suck, get fifth place. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's <laughs> well, something. I just, no, but it doesn't require any skill. You just hide the entire time. <laughs> you just let everybody kill each other, and then you kind of peek, you know, and by the, by the end, this circle has shrunken so much that you can't hide anymore. <laughs> and then somebody who knows what they're doing comes and kills you. It's very easy to get fifth place in Fortnite. It's like every every other game, I get fifth place. <laughs> Well, is there a prize for that? No, there's no prize for first place. <laughs> Just bragging rights. Well, right. where your games might be on join it or um, separate it from one another in some sort of theme, they definitely carry through this temporary existence, life, love, ceasing to be. There's an arrow of time, consequences for your actions, those type of things go through pretty much all your titles, I think. Or, yeah, or at least yeah. explored. I guess <laughs> if there's one underlying theme to everything I do, it's death, right? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Very true. And, you know, I, I don't know. I guess I would say that that's such a universal thing that it's not even really a tie that binds because it should be pervading everything. But <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, every other title, you respawn. Right. There's right. only yes. a very few games where you're dead and you're dead. Right. And yeah, that's been sort of a fascination of mine for a long time to some degree. Have I ever made a game where you respawn? <laughs> you know, in that, well, I've made games where you can't die, where just death is not a mechanic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I've never made a game that I can remember where you just respawn in the traditional way that you respawn in almost every video game. Either there's permadeath or there's some weird twist on it where you can't die or you just get knocked back or some other clear mechanic that doesn't even look like death at all. Right, right, right. Like in the case of Inside a Starfield Sky, if we go back about, you know, six years, seven years, that game is this infinite recursive tactical shooter game, which is, you brought up a shooter, I made a shooter, one shooter. That game, you're this little kind of monster, I guess, in this two-dimensional maze, and you're going around the maze, uh, and there's some enemies blocking your path, and you can shoot them with bullets. And then when you get to the goal, at the end of the maze, essentially, you realize that you were down inside yourself. (laughs) (laughs) So you rise up and then you realize, hey, I'm in control of a new creature now. 
But that whole maze that I was in was inside the creature I'm now controlling. And so when it, as it rises up, you can see, oh, I'm, I'm now outside what I was. I was previously running around inside this maze. The maze is actually this creature's body. And now I'm outside the creature controlling it. And if I get to the end of that new maze, I'm then rise up and realize I was inside another creature and now controlling that creature. So it's, it's this recursive, like, playing down inside yourself. Now, what happens? You have a little health bar, which is the most traditional health kind of system I've ever had in a game. Literally, mm-hmm. a count of how many hearts you have. <laughs> and if you get all your hearts knocked away by getting hit by enemy bullets... What happens, right? Do you die? Do you start the level over? So on and so forth. Well, you actually just get knocked down inside yourself. So you are sent back down a level, but it doesn't really feel like death in the same way. And I mean, maybe, you know, you could sort of through a really kind of distorted lens say, well, yes, it's technically death because you're starting over in this (laughs) other level. But, you know, it's in the fiction of the game and in the way in the metaphysical structure of the whole thing, it's has a totally different meaning, right? So if you want to get deep into it, you can get real, (laughs) real metaphysical about the whole thing. Uh, so, you know, and you could, you could also, along with entering yourself by getting killed, essentially, you can also enter all the enemies in the game. So you can go up to any enemy and you press the special key and suddenly you get sucked inside to them and you find a level that's inside the enemy. Now, while you're in there, you'll find some other enemies and you're fighting and doing different things inside that enemy. You can actually die, you know, in there and get pulled inside yourself, but you're inside the enemy, inside the version of yourself that was in the enemy, right? <laughs> And then die inside yourself again and be several levels down, still inside the enemy. It's progress Um, and regress, or (laughs) the other way around. Um, So, you know, that is a taste of (laughs) the way that I would sort of judo flip a traditional game structure like a shooter with Mm -hmm. hearts. Right. Yeah. I'm interested in Castle of Doctrine. Ah, the Castle Doctrine. Yes, the Castle Doctrine. The Castle of Doctrine. (laughs) The Castle of Dr. Dr. Roar. (laughs) The Castle Doctrine. Yes, which is actually, the Castle Doctrine is a legal term. Right, right, um, yeah. Which is the right, which isn't a right necessarily everywhere, but in certain states. And it's sort of a common law kind of thing, but it depends on whether states kind of have a law in favor of it or against it, um, where, you know, if someone's, potentially breaking into your house in a Mm -hmm. way that seems threatening to you, what constitutes appropriate force in that situation? Right. Um, You know, do you have the right to kill that person if you feel sufficiently under threat or do you have a duty to retreat as in run out the back door if you can, and you can only kill them if they've got you trapped against the wall with a gun to your head. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's an interesting legal doctrine that, uh, you know, is controversial and has, some interesting implications in the places uh, and there's been some interesting case law uh, in particular uh, actually the castle doctrine came out or was being developed at least before that trayvon martin george zimmerman case okay um and that is not a castle doctrine case but a stand your ground law kind of case where it's the out in the open we're out in public version of the castle doctrine right yes if someone is, t- is attacking you and you have a duty to retreat you have a duty to try to escape first uh before exercising force and how much force yeah Yeah, reasonable force and how much force is reasonable you know here in the united states i guess we sort of take self-defense for granted for the most part there are other countries like in the european union for example like sweden where you really have no rights as a victim (laughs) uh there's examples of cases where somebody installed a car alarm you know in their car and somebody 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 was trying to break into the car and Mm. the car alarm went to steal the car and the car alarm went off and damaged this person's hearing, this thief. <laughs> and the thief was able to sue and collect damages from the owner of the car for his loss of hearing. Oh, my. 
gosh, I think there's a case where a man was on the ground choking a woman and somebody else came along and tried to get them off to stop him from choking and killing her, hit him on the back of the head with a pan or something, right? Uh uh And it caused him to let go. Now, of course, it gave him a concussion and I think it gave him some kind of brain damage or something, right? That he had to suffer with for the rest of his life. Uh Now, he was able to collect damages from the guy who hit him. (laughs) Incredible. Because... It wasn't self-defense. Ah, that's true. <laughs> you were defending the life defending of someone else that else. doesn't wow. count. <laughs> wow. wow. So anyway, it's just kind of this crazy kind of stuff that, you know, different mores, different ways of understanding situations, different understandings of who has rights and who doesn't. Well, your um, game is definitely <laughs> unreasonable force. <laughs> well, it's interesting that in the castle doctrine, in the game, not the legal principle, it's kind of an, an ironic property of the game is that you never see anybody else face to face but it is Um, a multi it is a multiplayer game everybody has their own house it's on a server you can only play on a server you are potentially breaking into other people's houses on the server but only when they're not home you are potentially having other people break into your house on the server and try to get through whatever security you've set up, but only when you're not home, right? And yeah. so you never, you never come face to face. There's never any okay corral moment where it's like, ah, you know, we're drawing guns at each other and shooting and shooting each other. It's like, I'm sneaking through your security. You're sneaking through mine. I don't even get to see you do it aside from this, the, the few traces that you leave on my security footage, right? Because I can come back and watch these tapes mm-hmm. and see that you were there and see what you did, right? I don't ever interact with you directly. So it's, it's kind of funny that it's not the actual literal meaning of the castle doctrine, which is somebody breaking into your house and you pulling out a gun to protect yourself. It's not actually happening in the game. No. <laughs> I don't even know what legal precedents there are about this in terms of booby traps. <laughs> There was, but you can you can set booby traps in in the game and have a guard dog, and in fact, you can actually arm your spouse in the game with a shotgun, and she is around in the house when you're not home. She can exercise the castle doctrine, I suppose. But the game is more focused on these traps and electric floors and ways to trap people and security systems. And you know, I don't know uh, what legal precedents exist for that in real life. If you had a auto turret, for example. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, there was recently that one where uh, someone had a tripwire going down the basement where knives flew out at them. Yeah, so they just bought a house, and and that was part of in the house. Now, why they... Oh, the new owner? The new owner found it? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. (laughs) Now, why you would see a tripwire and then trip it, I don't know, (laughs) but that's what I did, and evidently this uh, board with knives or something came down. Didn't wow. hit, it didn't hit them, but that's the booby trap that was set up. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, that's pretty good stuff. I mean, you know, we could talk about the ethics of booby traps, <laughs> which yeah. I love the term. I love the term the booby, booby traps. Trap is quote. awesome. I that was my favorite game when I was a kid. Is there um, some sort of fundamental ethical principle that affects booby traps that doesn't affect other forms of defense? Right, because mm, mm. the fact that the booby trap grows legs in a way, or it sort of can transcend the intentions of its setter whoever creates it yeah it's a person that's you, know, you getting... have immediate plans for this booby trap right but you die or you sell the house in this case that the booby trap remains it yeah. remains active you never you can't really predict the future and where you're going to go relative to the booby trap mm-hmm. when you set it just like a landmine right i mean the landmine oh, that's true you set it during a war and there's a very particular purpose for it but it's hidden and it's hard to remove and nobody knows it's there anymore and it will last for decades if not centuries because it's designed to withstand the weather elements and so it seems like there's an ethical concern there and i, I don't know that landmines are allowed anymore right <laughs> yeah no that, that was stuff. supposed to be 
taken away and still out there and so i love the idea that there's fair warfare and unfair warfare (laughs) or ethical ethical warfare and unethical warfare like we're gonna say like this type of maiming and killing is (laughs) because it's not permissible it's a victim that's actually hurting themselves and killing themselves by stepping on these things. Oh, well, with a landmine, that's true. But I'm, I'm talking about, you know, there's all these rules against, are you allowed to use shotguns right, in right. battle? Or, or gas and, or yeah. napalm and <laughs> things like that. You can kill a person, but how? Right. <laughs> the efficacy isn't in the kill. It's in how, I guess. <laughs> yeah. How you deprive so, uh, someone's family <laughs> of their loved ones. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that stuff is fascinating to me. I mean, I love these kind of uh, philosophical discussions. I love hearing these examples. So as a result, though, there's interesting sort of consequences of, of this, maybe, or maybe it's just a cultural difference. People in Sweden, apparently, at least from some people I've spoken to, have much stronger doors and locks than we do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in an apartment building, for example, the doors, some Swedish person wrote to me, I was like, I don't understand you Americans. Why are you so worried about all this stuff? Why didn't you just make your doors open out like we do in Sweden? Why do they open in, Mm -hmm. which makes them so easy to kick in? Like everybody in Sweden in an apartment has a door that opens out. And I think they sent me a video of like there was maybe a fire or an emergency in somebody's apartment and they weren't answering the door. Or maybe they weren't even home and there was a fire in their apartment. And it took the fire department, Jesus, like... 10 minutes to get into their door. <laughs> they had to use this battering ram and this prying thing. And they had this whole hydraulic machine they were trying to use. <laughs> Whereas in America, like anybody can pretty much kick down anybody's door, you know, unless yeah. they have it reinforced. Right. Cause yeah. it's just like a thin little piece of pine <laughs> that's between the deadbolt and, and the door opening. Right. Why do our doors open in? <laughs> I don't know. It's strange. To like, greet the people. Yeah, I mean, it's not... <laughs> Come in, friend. Come in. Yeah, yeah, no, but it is a good point. When, you know, someone's at your door and you want to open the door to say hello to them and you have to open the door and push them out of the way. <laughs> that's right, yeah. That's like Mappy in uh, yeah. Namco's Mappy game. These <laughs> doors. Also, Ladybug did that. Push your enemies with the doors. Right, right. And I think, yeah, there have been some uh, sneaking kind of uh, 3D games where that is <laughs> a mechanic where you mm-hmm. can open the door and like whap somebody in the face with it or something. Yeah, so that's a good point. In public buildings in the United States, according to fire code, in at least most places, the doors have to open out mm-hmm. because otherwise people who are in the building who are panicking during a fire will press up against the door and, and cook, cook themselves. So there's also the whole thing with the crash bar where a person's body pressing against oh, the door yeah, has yeah, to be yeah. able to undo the latch. Yes. Um, so there can't be some like knob you have to be able to reach down and turn in order to get out. <laughs> like it's, yeah. All that stuff is really interesting to me. Um, just like how humans over time I mean, it, is, it does feel like game design to me, a lot of it, right? Humans over time had to figure out all these different affordances and the designs of these systems to handle, you know, situations of independent actors. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, moving like, around in this space and, and what's going to happen in certain situations and how the space is designed to, I mean, it's architecture and it's design and a bunch of mm-hmm. other things too, but it definitely reminds me of, especially in multiplayer games, what I'm dealing with when I am watching the players of my game interact with my system run up against the boundaries of the system, find failure cases <laughs> or kind of group behaviors that are destructive or harmful or unfun or uninteresting, but are the rational behaviors in the system that I constructed and then figuring out how to modify and adjust that system to make other behaviors or more interesting behaviors more rational, right? Yes. Um, you know, it's the equivalent of a crowd of people pressing up against the door and not being able to reach the door. <laughs> you know? So that stuff is always always kind of fun to fun to think about. So your newest project, you went from five minutes to have a life, 
Now you, you add it on. Five minutes and two thousand. Five minutes in two thousand and seven to a full hour in 2018. <laughs> I did this here. I did this. I only made it to five years old. Oh, geez. I think that was the highest I ever made it. I was like, yeah, food, that's a, that's food. Yeah, that's, that's a tough spot. There. Food, food. And some yeah. guy picked me up. I was still like little. He picked me up and he took me to some way remote place. And, you know, I'm new to this. I don't understand. So I'm trying to look around for food in, in jungles and rubber trees and everything else. And I just starved. <laughs> there should be some bananas in the jungle there. I, I had a banana. I couldn't put it down. I think I, think I was trying <laughs> oh. to stab things with bananas, I think. All right. <laughs> yeah, so um, it's a hard game. So what do you uh, do with sure. this one-hour life? What happens? Give everybody oh, yeah. the so, breakdown. So, okay, yeah, let's rewind here. And for an audience that's unfamiliar with it, let's explain it. So, One Hour, One Life is, a, is an online game where you're playing on a big server where there's potentially 100 other people playing on the same server as you, all in the same world. That world starts out full of untouched wilderness. It's actually a huge world. It's 4 billion tiles wide by 4 billion tiles tall. Wow. 70 times the surface area of Jupiter, something like 50,000 times the surface area of the Earth, something like this, right? Wow. Huge. Yeah. Untouched wilderness. The first player to join the server, the first person who spawns in, spawns in into the center of this wilderness as Eve, the first human being. And any players who come in afterwards, like player number two, player number three, they'll be born as Eve's first babies. They're born as helpless babies into the game, where Eve, this first player, is their mother. And later on in the game, as players grow up and so on and, and get old enough to have babies of their own, they will be potentially Eve's grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and so on. Born as helpless babies to other players in the game chosen at random who yeah. are old enough to have a baby. Yeah. So if you join the game, like today, you just start playing the game, and there's an established uh, family tree in the game of people who are descending from Eve, you'll most likely be born as a helpless baby to some mother in some situation in the game. Now, what are players doing in this uh, wilderness? Uh, they are rebuilding civilization from scratch in a hypothetical thought experiment of like, well, if we had to start over from scratch, but we knew all tech, right? We weren't, we weren't back in the Stone Age, but we were just sort of like on another planet in mm. the similar wilderness. Like, how long would it take us to get back to iPhones, for example, from rocks and sticks? Right, right. So Eve and the first people who spawn into the server are literally starting with rocks and sticks. And there's only something like 40 or 50 naturally occurring objects in the game. But there are currently something like 2,800 things that humans can make in the game I from see. those right, natural right. beginnings, right? Yes. The tutorial so for, is very good. For As an example, you find a rock on the ground. If you go up to a boulder and like smash the rock on the boulder, you can make a sharp rock. <laughs> yes. And that sharp rock can do things that the rock couldn't do, like help you dig up a, a wild carrot mm -hmm. uh, or help you whittle down a, a branch and turn it into a shaft or whittle down the, the shaft and turn it into a handle. And then if you find some milkweed, you can pick the stalks and make string out of them, braid some strings together into rope, and then attach your sharp stone to a handle and suddenly have a hatchet. Yes. And the hatchet could do all sorts of things the sharp stone couldn't do. So those are just examples of some of the human-made things that start from natural things. But it goes currently all the way up to radios and airplanes. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and combustion engines and oil refining and so on to go along with the combustion engines. And these are so, yes, all from rocks players, and sticks, right? These, from rocks these... and sticks to airplanes. Yes, and everybody you interact with in the game, and this is a, an interesting point that some players are confused about, especially when they watch YouTube videos or experience the game for the first time. You see these people running around in your village. They're your uncle, your aunt, your mm -hmm. great-grandmother, your cousin, 
are these NPCs? Right, right. Or are they, you know, they're kind of, I guess they move in such a cohesive way together that, that some, some people think they don't understand. No, no, those are other players. I think part of it is that games that are multiplayer have a certain aesthetic way of presenting the fact that they are multiplayer that everyone recognizes mm-hmm. that this game doesn't have, right? Which is like a chat box in the corner right. with like a stream of ASCII gibberish going by. <laughs> Handles like JCR 13 or, or Big Mama 50 or whatever gotcha. floating above everybody's heads yes, when yes. you see them running around. This game doesn't have any of that stuff, right? It really is like... There's nothing that is disturbing the sort of fiction of the game, which is, hey, I was born as a helpless baby to this person. Who is this person? Oh, she's my mother, and she has a name, but the name was given to her by her mother. Mm-hmm, <laughs> it's not a mm-hmm. name she picked. And it, a name like Big Trucker 15 is not even allowed, right? Like, <laughs> right? There's literally there's a list of approved names that I picked from the Social Security database of human being names in the United States that occurred in 2016. When you pick a name for your baby, you, uh, the closest matching name of a real human being is chosen, right? So, uh, um, so you can't just name your baby Dickhead or whatever, <laughs> unless, somebody was, unless somebody was named Dickhead in real life, which they weren't, unfortunately. Okay, that's good. So that whole fiction is like preserved. And as you, when you're a baby, also, when you go to chat in the game, there's no chat box, but there is like what looks almost like comic book uh, bubbles above mm-hmm. your head. Um, and so you're allowed to talk to the players, but the amount that you're allowed to say is modulated by how old you are. Yeah, I think so, I was able to say, what, like three? Yeah. So when you're, three? When you're, my mom when you're asked born, me if I was her baby. <laughs> And you said, I said, yeah, Why? yeah. <laughs> so well, yeah, when you're born initially, you're only allowed to type a single character. So as a helpless baby, a newborn infant, you can go like, ah, or fa, fa, da, ba, you know, and yeah. then, you know, as uh, get to be one year old, then you can add a second character to that. So you can start saying ba and ma and da. And as a two year old, you can start saying whole words like dad and cat and dog. Right. Yeah, I said and the food. joke. The joke is that as a three-year-old, you can start swearing because you can say four-letter words, right? Uh, I see. <laughs> but anyway, as you get older and older and older, you're allowed to say more and more. So that also filters out this sort of new player spam tendency or whatever. Mm. Like, I just joined the game. Let's check the boundaries of this. Let's try the chat box out and blah blah blah. You know, like uh, <laughs> you kind of earn your right uh, as you live older and older to say more and more and monopolize more and more people's screen space with your utterances, up until the point where you're. Uh, going to die at the end of your hour and you're 60 minutes old or 60 years old in the fiction of the game. Everybody dies after an hour no matter what. You can also die, as you said, along the way of starvation and other causes or being murdered or whatever happens in the course of your life. But if you make it all the way to 60 after 60 minutes or 60 hours in the game, 60 hours in the fiction of the game, then you die of old age. I saw and, I saw my, probably my great-grandmother, she was just standing there naked and she said goodbye <laughs> and then pile of bones. Yep. Toward the end of her life there, she could type an entire, uh, I think it's like 61 characters or something. Wow. Right? It's, almost an, it's almost an entire tweet. So, so that you know, helps to encapsulate this idea of like, oh, what are the elders for? And you know, what new abilities do they have? As they, they get older, they get weaker, their stomachs get smaller and so on. But they have more wisdom, right? Because they're the ones, that, that grandmother of yours saw the time that you were born Mm-hmm. saw many, many minutes or, you know, 30 minutes even before you were born, you know, so, so she has seen this village longer than you have. She has more knowledge about the direction of the village and, and the oral traditions of the village. So she's given more room in her text bubbles to say more because right? mm-hmm. mm-hmm. she's wise. <laughs> her farewell speech to her family can be, can be longer than goodbye if she wants it to be. <laughs> I guess. Very interesting. I'm, I'm not a social gamer. So it was a little weird for me, but, um, (laughs) well, I mean, I'm trying to also 
push away from people's normal perceptions of what that means, right? Of course, yeah. You know, definitely. social gaming means you're going to go on a raid party with your friends that yeah. you met online inside the game. Sure. You know, this this game kind of strips all that away and puts you, you know, really as an individual thrust into the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, there are other human actors involved in that they're controlling these other characters, but you can almost forget that that's the case. That's true. Um, and because there's no room for their true details of them as real human beings to, to sort of leak through. There's no sort of Leroy Jenkins kind of thing sneak, <laughs> slipping through, yeah. right? Yeah. Because um, they just get this text to chat. They look the part. They can't control their character in a way that makes them move in a way that is, breaks, the, breaks the fiction, right? So that's also part of what gives people this feeling of attachment to their mothers in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, I don't know, your grandmother said goodbye, everybody, or whatever. But some people, at the end of their lives, say goodbye, I love you all. Oh. Or mothers and, ba- mothers and babies do tell each other they love each other in the game, right? And so, for all you know, your mother is like some 12-year-old kid in New Jersey, right? <laughs> right. Um, but there's no way for you to find out or see that or verify that, right? So you kind of see this it's little cartoon, this little cartoon woman taking care of you. Yeah. <laughs> and her name is... Sandy Jenkins or whatever, which was not even a name she picked. That's a name her mother gave her. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she gives you a name and she calls you Toby Jenkins. <laughs> so I'm Toby Jenkins. There's this little cartoon woman taking care of me. She's really taking care of me. She really seems to care about me. And then after she's done taking care of me, she says, you're you're getting older now. You can take care of yourself. Good luck to you. Here, take this hat. And she puts a hat on your head or whatever, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, before you leave the house. <laughs> yep. There's enough humanity there that you can start to feel something without so much humanity shining through that it kind of is so specific that it would block that, right? And so I don't really see it as a social game in the same vein as like Warcraft or oh, yeah, uh, yeah. E- even even maybe Realm of the Mad God or something where like it's really about this teeming crowd of people who are all kind of chatting to each other or something. I've never seen anybody inside the game talking about anything that was not about the fiction of the game. You can imagine people in the World of Warcraft chat channel arguing about <laughs> Donald Trump or, or who, who's going to win the, the basketball championship or something, right? Yes, yes. There's something about One Hour in Life that just makes that not happen. There are all sorts of crazy things that have happened in the story of these towns. There are people spewing forth Nazi rhetoric or whatever. <laughs> but in the context of, hey, there's a Nazi in our town. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Not in the context of, hey, there's this guy who's promoting, you know, who's, I don't know what I can lay the sort of credit at at the feet of there, right? Like, it's like, so for some reason, there's all these factors that conspire to make people kind of behave in character. And even if they don't like role-playing or even mm-hmm. if that's not mm-hmm. their normal thing or whatever, I always felt it always very, very forced um, in like World of Warcraft or EverQuest or something like that. I am an orc. Right. <laughs> so, um, like when there's a murderer in the town, the people in the town kind of get together and they're talking about what evidence they saw and who did it and who they think is guilty and making a plan for how to deal with this person if the person ran away and they're going to come back later, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you only have an hour, so... Right, that, I, think, that I think the time limit also... Yeah. yeah, the time limit also helps to, like... And people are starving all the... You know, or they, they, need <laughs> to, they need to be advancing their civilization. There's things that they need to be doing. So that makes the, the, the things that they say to each other very necessarily utilitarian so that they're not just wasting their breath, essentially. Exactly. Um, That's awesome. So how does this tie into Dig Dug and Dig Dug 2? Oh, <laughs> to get back to the arcade theme. Uh, I don't know that... Yeah, so I, I was just thinking of some arcade games that I really liked. You know, I was born in 1977, so that's like... Is that like the year Tempest came out or something, right? 
so I, I kind of I'm a little bit young for the golden era. Mm-hmm. It's like you know, did I go down to the pub and play Defender? No. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, that's more like the teenagers in the early 80s who were doing that kind of stuff and having those kind of mind-blowing experiences. Sure. For me, I was like a little kid growing up and seeing arcade machines. Actually, I remember our shopping mall, Summit Mall in Farallon, Ohio, a real sort of, well, I don't know, like all malls were in the 80s, kind of uh, sort of a dated kind of enterprise that's kind of got grubby carpet and it's kind of needs a remodel but it's not going to have one for another 10 years and kind of yeah <laughs> it was the coolest thing in like you know 1969 <laughs> but now it's kind of uh festering a little bit you know yeah the fountains and, uh, don't have water in them anymore <laughs> yeah or they got yeah there was this hallway it wasn't even a official business oh, okay. in the mall some malls have their arcade mm-hmm. like the magic castle or gemini or twin galaxies or whatever you know whatever this was not an official arcade it was not a business it was just this one hallway in the mall kind of like a backwater hallway where there were no stores maybe a rear entrance kind of Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. had arcade games in it and a lot of them maybe there were like eight arcade games on one side and eight back to back eight eight by eight right a long line of them down this hallway and when i went to the mall with my mom i'd be like look i want to go play those games but you could see the teenagers down there and the types of teenagers that were down there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think smoking was loud indoors. Sure. So there was like, they were smoking cigarettes. They had like mustaches and mullets. Yeah. <laughs> I could understand. They looked like the types of kids my mother probably wouldn't want her little six or seven year old hanging around. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was sort of the, my, my earliest memory of what the cultural standing of arcade video games was, right? It seemed seedy a little bit. Sure. It seemed like something the big bad older kids were doing and spend and this was you know during the day or whatever maybe even before i was in school like what are all these kids doing here at this hour (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah these are probably these are probably kids skipping school oh yeah and then (laughs) the occasional uh, salesman who wasn't out selling he was either playing video games or going to a movie right right and there was a yeah there was a there was a two-screen movie theater at the mall as well uh, along with an orange julius and the little pizza place (laughs) that had the greasy pizza and sure uh, hot Sam's pretzels. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, now that thing was eventually removed, right? It didn't continue to exist there my entire life. So, you know, Summit Mall still exists. There is no arcade hallway anymore. It's been totally remodeled and everything. But somewhere along the way, around the time the movie theater went out, all the arcade machines just disappeared. And I think there were some a couple of times when my parents let me go down there and play something. I think there were also maybe one of those machines that was like a little mini merry-go-round with the colored horses on it sure. you know, for three for three kids where you put it in the quarter. That might have been right at one end of it, right? So it's like, sure. oh, well, we'll kind of go down here to play. And there were other times when I was at a bar or a restaurant where there was some arcade machine, and I definitely remember playing you know, Pac-Man or uh, some of the, the more sort of red-blooded kind of American upstanding arcade, <laughs> you know. But my parents were always very hesitant to let that into their home. You're not getting a uh, Nintendo. Oh, wow. Game. And so they eventually got me an Atari, thinking that that was somehow less insidious. Um, and it turns out, and I don't know if they realized it, but Atari was an American company, right? Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, Where Nintendo, as my dad always pronounced it, was uh, <laughs> very odd in Japanese. You know, this is about a plumber... Was right. eating mushrooms yes. <laughs> and jumping on turtles. Yeah, where the Atari was more like this is about military guys jumping out of airplanes and trying to land on the right spot mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and skydiver. Anyway, a lot of the arcade games that I ended up playing actually, when I talk about Dig Dug, the m- most of my time playing Dig Dug was on the Atari seventy eight hundred, which was fortunately not the crappy twenty six hundred adaptation that looks. 
right. nothing like Dig Dug. Yeah, this was a pretty direct arcade translation. Yeah, the uh, seventy eight hundred did uh, did great arcade uh, justice. Yeah, and so we had that, and we had the Dig Dug version. Actually, I think it was my sister's. I think she got it for Christmas. She and I played a lot of Dig Dug on that. <laughs> I know there was a two-player mode where you'd take turns. Yeah. I don't think there was a two-player mode where you'd actually be running around inside the thing. No. Um, but no, was, I definitely remember yeah. we'd play this game where we'd like, kind of like pump up the monster and then let him deflate. Mm-hmm. Sure, and then pump him up again and let him deflate. Yeah. And like you know, kind of keep him on the keep him on the respirator. Yeah, <laughs> and we'd just be like little kids, you know, just like giggling in our pajamas. <laughs> like then time would kind of expire, which means some of the other monsters would turn to ghosts and start coming through the walls at us. Mm-hmm. And you'd be like trying to pump up this monster more times, you know, just <laughs> before you had to run away, you know, before you finally make. Un- you know, my sister would be squealing, make a pop, make a pop, you gotta make a pop. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, what is interesting about Dig Dug to me as a designer is this idea of sort of a player-generated level, right? Where the level is pretty much very minimally designed by the designers. There's, there's like the channel down the center mm-hmm. that's open, and there's a couple of little side kind of caves, I guess. I don't know what to call them, tunnels that aren't connected yeah. uh, where the monsters start. But other than that, it's sort of up to you to sort of craft the layout of the level um, or alter it alter it in a very dramatic way and the other example of this which i never played growing up as far as i'm aware but i've since encountered as an adult and been very fascinated with is mr do yeah yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, mr do has a similar mechanic where you're digging through but also very strange mechanics to go along with it um with this sort of bouncing kind of almost like a boomerang that bounces around the level that you can fire the storyline or whatever i guess he's a guy who's dreaming and there's (laughs) I still don't really understand what's going on in that game, but <laughs> we talk a lot about Universal. That's who made Mister Do, and how they would take an idea like a Dig Dug, and then they would improve on it. They would right. add their own elements to it. And Mister Do had a long string of games, and Dig Dug had a few games. He had Dig Dug, Dig Dug Two, where he was now all the monsters that escaped are where do they go? Oh, they went on top of this uh, island. Now you have your blow-up gun, and you can make them blow up. They can still turn into ghosts and stuff to come after you quicker than walking. And then you destroy parts of this island so that they fall into the ocean or the abyss or whatever. And then Mr. Driller was uh, his son. And Dig Dug, whose name was uh, Taizo Hori, which means I like to dig. I think that's what it means. That's the character's name? Yeah. I want to dig. I want to dig. That's right. He ended up getting married to the protagonist in Baraduke, which was a shooter, where you went down through different levels of, of the planet and things like this. And her name was, uh, I know it just translated to, I can fly. I think that was what her name translated to. They were all, you know, plays on these names. Uh, she was once called Kissy, uh, but then they changed it to uh, Masuya Toby. <laughs> You're tempting me here. You're tempting me to open my web browser and start looking this stuff up, you know. <laughs> well, <laughs> so you I have can. Baraduke. I have Baraduke up on my screen right now. Oh, do you? Okay. Yeah, that uh, well, was I'm a- not, not, not to look up the details, but just even I'm, I'm, I'm not familiar with Baraduke. Um, so I'm just looking at it, what it looks like. Well, this was a year a before me- Metroid. It looks like Metroid. It was a year okay. before it, and. That's where you found out that the protagonist was female, right? And that was a big. And you, you think? Know, and so Metroid looks like it was a pretty direct copy off of Baraduke. It's you know it definitely is unusual. I mean, you know, my <laughs> understanding is that those games didn't take very long to make. My modern standards, right? You hear 
even if you hear people talking about like Wolfenstein or like Quake or something, it's like, yeah, we spent nine months on that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and some of these arcade games were literally like, yeah, one person and right. a musician sure. spent a couple of months making this. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I don't know how long, I wonder how long they spent on um, Metroid and if there really is this prior art kind of issue here and they probably saw this and made their clone of it. I mean, it really looks like Metroid from the screenshot I'm looking at here. It's quite the guy, possible. The person has a little visor, and there's monsters walking on the ceiling and the floor. Mm-hmm. And there's a shield and some kind of little bomb symbols under the shield. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> it's suspect. No doubt about it. Yeah. So their son was uh, Mr. Driller uh, Susumi Hori. I don't know what that translates to. But uh, Mr. Driller and, and uh, I call him Mr. Doug, Mr. Dig Doug. <laughs> Mr. Dig Doug's always a little jealous of his son. Oh, and by the way, uh, Kissy and, and uh, Hori had a divorce. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so they're, they're not together anymore. And it sort of culminates with, uh, there was a game released called uh, Dig Doug Digging Strike. And you find out a lot more backstory there. And I think there was a, also a cartoon that helped bring all the story together. But it, when when Mr. Driller came out, that's sort of when we found out all about this stuff going on with the Namco characters and all this backstory and things like that. Yeah. But you had mentioned, I guess, to Kyle that you might want to talk about Dig Dug. And, and I knew that the style of your games, I immediately put it together that, okay, well, it must be because in Dig Dug 2 what's really going on there? And, and I just thought in my mind, oh, those are the monsters that came up through the ground, all the ones that escaped when you couldn't, you know, as soon as you got down to the last monster in, in Dig Dug, the last monster would turn into a ghost, try to float up to the ceiling and escape off screen. And you got extra points if you blew him up before he got away. Right. And so it's like, well, where did all those monsters go? And, and that's where they are. They're on the surface now. And a lot of people don't like Dig Dug 2, but I like it. Well, does Dig Dug 2 have any digging? Uh, no, I'm looking at the screenshots here. You're running around on like it's like a Zelda type. Yeah, you have a jackhammer. It's a single screen. You have a jackhammer, and if you see those little dots, those are those are fault lines. You can hold the monsters up by starting to pump them, and and letting them go. But then when you want to destroy them, you know what? I think they could blow up. But you basically want to try to get them to one part of the island. And then sink as much as that part of the island as you can. Like cut it, like cut it off. Yes, exactly. Like cutting a birthday cake or something. Yeah, it's sort of like kicks, but not at all like kicks. Kicks is a big game that we talk about on this uh, show a lot. It's you know a game about. So you're so, so you're digging. Those little black circles are holes that you're digging. Yeah, you just you hit that with your jackhammer, and it makes the fault line occur, and uh, you can actually be on the wrong side of the fault line and, and kill yourself accidentally, but that's, <laughs> and fall off. Yeah. yeah. But that's what it's like the classic thing with the coyote or whatever, the uh-huh. cartoon, like sawing the hole in the floor. Yep. He's on the wrong side of it. Yeah. <laughs> and then the whole house falls away. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's what you do there. And then Mr. Driller, he, he's supposedly not very bright. <laughs> this is a, an entire backstory. Well, okay, so, so, uh, so just re- re- rewinding here a bit. So, so for, for dig dug, you're down underground mm-hmm. under the surface. He it, runs the digger, the digger. It doesn't necessarily show. It doesn't necessarily show, show grass at the top of the dig dig screen, but it has like flowers, right. That appear to indicate something lives or something. Yes, and you um, always eat fruits. A fruit always appears like in the middle. So, so in yeah. So it seems like yeah. Okay, so dig dug two. You're up on the surface now. 
and yeah, I guess these are the ones that ran away. I, 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 I can see how um, almost That's like how those little it. those little black circles are are places you could go down underground if you wanted to, but you don't want to anymore. <laughs> right? It's down there. Yeah. Now, now, yeah, because you dug <laughs> all that like stuff hole. up. Those are holes. Yeah, right? and you dug it all up. Now it's that the ground is all loose. Yeah, be careful. Weird. I had never heard of Dig Dug Two until just now, and um, it's interesting that they took it in such a totally different direction. And that's why people and yet, didn't like it. Yeah, it's it's still. Well, I'm not. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm not going to comment on that. I, I would love to try it. I, I will have to try it in an emulator, I guess, here mm-hmm, soon. Mm-hmm. But even though it is not about digging underground and making these pathways and so on, it is still uh, a game where you are drastically modifying the level. Definitely, uh, that green stuff will fall away and leave blue uh, once those things sink into the ocean, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so, so. Like I'm shocked when I heard Dig Dug Two, I immediately assume it would just be some slight twist, just like Ms. Pac-Man or some of the other Pac-Man right, games right, are. Right. Are still the same core mechanics of running around in a maze and, and there's ghosts and power pellets and like Raiden Two or whatever. <laughs> right, sure, sure. Uh, so I'm shocked that's so different. Also, it's interesting that though it is so different, it still has this fundamental thing that makes sets it unique from a lot of other arcade games, which is this level is going to change dramatically based on your actions. Um, and that's something I never thought about. When we talk about Dig Dug, we always talk about the fact that the music only occurs when you're walking. So we're always paying attention to the music. It would be a really early prototype of something that would be a musical type of making game. Uh, right, you know, like like a red. Yeah, or that's something. How, you just reminded me of that. But now I think back about it. Another interesting thing about Dig Deck is that it is it is pretty silent. Yes, when you're not moving. Exactly. And and when you stop, <laughs> uh, when you stop to pump up a monster, it's silent except for the pumping sound. Yep, yep. Um, so that I, I think I think that is also <laughs> I think that is also um, part of what made it so tactile and funny for me and my sister when we were little. Is just like all you're hearing is this monster suffering, <laughs> you know? and then yeah, and I guess, huh? Yeah, the idea that the music starts and stops. So it's, I, I never even noticed it explicitly, and now I'm thinking about it. But like, so it literally is like a musical chairs kind of thing, and in, in that it continues where the music left off That's every true. time you start moving. But it'll it'll freeze on that note; it won't start over right. every time you move. Um, um, I think it starts over. But yeah, it just stops abruptly. <laughs> it's funny. All right, but so I never thought gonna, of it as as making building your own level. I never thought of it. There's going to be, I mean, there's going to be a lot of emulator use in my uh, house this weekend. That's good. <laughs> well, I mean, my kids, you know, I have 15, 11, and eight, and they definitely like seeing these old things. And uh, they have played Dick Dug, but we haven't ever dissected it that closely. And we will obviously play Dick Dug too as well. That's interesting to think about it as a music game and just kind of tying that back into, and I don't know that I ever, I'm sure I'd never uh, consciously made this connection or took inspiration from it, but um, I've always tried to use music and sort of, uh, a more integrated way somehow in the games that I make. Um, yeah, definitely. So for example, if going back in time to like, Right after Passage came out, uh, the next game that came out in 2008 was Gravitation. Passage just has a pretty traditional soundtrack, a piece of music that plays. But I was, I'm not usually satisfied with that, right? I'm usually like, yeah, I don't just want music playing in the background. Mm-hmm. Like, I want music to be part of the game somehow right. um, and be interactive. And so in Gravitation, there's all these different layers to the music, including a very slow kind of plotting under layer and then more and more kind of faster paced, elaborate layers that come on top of it that are, are, triggered by the mood that you're currently having your character is 
a character who goes through these kind of mood cycles where sometimes you can jump really high and get really far in the level and other times your mood kind of collapses on you and you're not able to move very actively and different things that you do in the game affect that mood visual art changes from like a vibrant spring kind of scene to a cloudy cold winter scene mm-hmm. when you have the mood changes very smoothly and the music also changes very smoothly as your mood modulates as these different elements of the music are are added into the mix it's very kind of seamless and as your mood gets slightly better slightly faster things starts to fade in and then once you get to the full-blown kind of manic <laughs> manic attack then you have this huge like pulsing vibrant score of music and then if your mood collapses it slides right back down mm-hmm. Inside of Starfield Sky, which we talked about before, there's um, like every enemy is making a little piece of music that goes into the mix. So as you run around the level and get close to certain right, enemies, right. you're hearing like different melodies and things. Um, and the power ups make sounds as well. And uh, even the the drum beat that you're hearing uh, is connected to the exit in the level. And as you get closer and closer and closer to that drum to the exit, the drum beat gets louder and louder. So that kind of stuff I've been trying to do on one hour on life. There's a little piece of music that plays every five minutes. Oh, is um, that how that works? Okay. So, so and so you, you know, there's 12 pieces of music, and they always play in the same order. So, like your five-year-old birthday song is always the same, and I your see. ten-year-old birthday song. Okay. So, if you want to hear the entire score, you have to live until old age, and you hear this one last, slightly longer piece that literally ends its last note right at the moment you die, if you die of old age. Wow. Right? But if you if you die a little bit early, the music gets cut off abruptly. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you get um, the musical cues about your hunger getting right, the best right. of you. Yeah, Trying to use music in some way that is not just, oh, here's some background music to listen to while you play this game, right? Yeah. <laughs> Giving the music meaning or gameplay meaning or something. I mean, it's a reminder. The music in one hour in life in particular is a reminder of the passage of time. Every time you hear it, you're like, oh, wait a minute, I'm getting older. Oh, wait. Jeez, wow, look at me. Look at my character. It makes you kind of take a step back, right? Maybe that's all inspired by Dig Dug. <laughs> that's one of the funniest things I've ever heard. But yeah, maybe. <laughs> so the other one uh, that I talked briefly about by email out of time was Raiden. Oh, you did? Uh, which oh, is, oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Which is a more, um, I guess I feel like it's a more modern kind of style of arcade game. It's you know definitely not in the same realm as Dig Dug in terms of sophistication, right? <laughs> And especially Raiden 2, which I think is the one that I probably played more because it just happens to be around more. Mm-hmm. Raiden you know, Triad, crazy, there's a lot of other... With, with these crazy you know, projectile uh, power-ups that you can get that are really sort of visually stunning and in terms of exactly how full the screen can cut, get with your own bullets, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which I don't think was just... It just wasn't possible uh, back in the, in the Dig Dug era, probably with the hardware that they had. So I think this is probably more like late 80s, maybe even early 90s kind of era arcade stuff well the original Uh, riding came out pretty early and it was very basic the main thing was scrolling shooter that allowed you to hit ground targets as well as uh you know targets in the air with different buttons um right right. that's kind of unique to it ride in video game well how early was it uh it is saying 88 85 wait i'm just gonna say numbers game (laughs) i'm seeing 90 Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so hmm. that's Raiden 1. It says Raiden is a vertically scrolling shooter game originally developed by a Japanese name I'm not going to try to pronounce and distributed by Temco in Japan on September 1990. So oh. so I, just to just to put things in perspective, I was 13 or almost 13. Right. right. So that's like right in the zone of me having a chance to maybe have a little freedom and be at the arcade, whatever was left of it with my friends and so on and run into a game like Raiden and be like, oh my gosh. 
get more of those red power ups, you know, <laughs> like, and then your screen is just covered with uh, covered with bullets. And Raiden two, I think, was at when I was in college. They had a Raiden two in maybe the laundromat or something of my of my dorm, <laughs> and uh, and so I, whenever I, my girlfriend used to actually get annoyed when I, I gotta play Raiden. <laughs> <laughs> So that's another thing that when I think of arcade games, I think of that. I also think of I did spend quite a bit of time playing Street Fighter Two in my teen years. Sure, uh, sure, everybody, and did. maybe more. You know, Mortal Kombat. That's kind of like you know my era of like the tail end of arcade. Mm-hmm. Um, Golden Axe, I think, was another one that was actually in the arcade. <laughs> Greatest hits is what you played. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I'm just you know that's that's, that's cool. Uh, it's all it's right. sort of a it's it's a you know it's a it's a it's a different era, right? Yeah. Um, and and so it was more like mining the history when I went back and. But I didn't play Tempest until it was on the Atari Jaguar, which is Jeff Minter's version. Oh, man, yeah. Tempest 2000. Mm-hmm. Didn't even know it was based on an arcade game. I just heard it was awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then one of my friends um, who was playing you know, as a teenager with me, you know, we were like 16-year-olds or something playing on the Atari Jaguar in my basement. And he was talking about how awesome Tempest was. So he had these older brothers who were like, you know, 10 years older than him. Uh-huh. And he was like, yeah, I remember my brothers talking about that when it, you know, they used to play in the arcade when it first came out. And, and so I have personally been in front of a Tempest machine with vector graphics, like a, the real one. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I think I've been in front of the color vector graphics one, which is a little weird because it still has a shadow mask. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> You know what right, that right. means from yeah. a CRT. Sure. So there, there still are what look almost like pixels, right? But you can sort of tell by looking at it that it really isn't Cause, because there's RGB elements on the screen that are being hit by these different beams through the shadow mask. So there is this little bit of... Like a true black and white uh, vector display literally looks like laser beams or something. Mm-hmm. These very pure, smooth, cur- curvaceous kind of faded out lines of color, uh, lines of light. On an RGB vector display, you kind of get a little bit of graininess because there's still RGB elements on the screen that are being hit by the beams. But you can still see that where the lines cross, it's brighter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? You can see the points. So it's, yeah. Yeah, you know, where, where you know, on the bow tie shape or whatever, where they come in the center, the center is brighter mm-hmm. because the lines are being hit more than once by the beam. So it still looks really, yeah. still, yeah, it still looks really, really, really beautiful. And that is something I guess I can imagine myself trying to do at some point, maybe in the twilight years of my <laughs> game design career, is somehow redeveloping a vector display of some kind. Um, because I think lost and forgotten, oh, we're yeah. all playing temp. We're all we're all playing Tempest on emulators or Jeff Minter's version on the Atari Jaguar, you know, and so on. I think I have Tempest 2000 sitting here. What was it called? Tempest X. Not Tempest oh, okay. 2000 was Minter's version. Tempest X was kind of a spinoff of Tempest 2000. Tempest X3 is what it's called, oh. and it's for the PlayStation. It still has some of Minter's bonus levels in it, but it has its own. I think it has its own new bonus level in it. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, I, I just got Tempest 4000 <laughs> for the PlayStation, PlayStation 4. One. Oh, it's out? Yeah, Tempest 4000. And, uh, and who, it's pretty did Jeff, good. Did, did Jeff work on it? This I don't know. I just know that it carries that on. There were a few versions where it paled in comparison to the Jaguar. So I was a little worried about 4000. Super Zapper Richa. <laughs> yeah, it's some good stuff. Yeah, in fact, my Jaguar, I was fortunate enough to build the spinner knob into into the back of my uh, Jaguar controller. You oh, could, you, you could, mean you modded it? Yeah, you could take the Atari 2600 racing pads, the racing ones, not the not the paddles for Pong or tennis, but the racing wheel spinner, racing spinner. Right. And you can hook it up, and Minter put a 
code in there where you press a certain series of buttons and it unlocks the ability to use the, the spinner controller uh, in that game. And uh, what a difference that makes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I was just playing it on the D-pad, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and then, no, that was cool. I, I, had, I actually had a Tempest 2000 celebration day when that was released. I had a whole bunch of people over, and we all played Tempest 2000. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't now, until I think, years I think later, there was also, that was my exposure to Tempest. That was the first time I had ever even probably heard of it. So you could, that sort of sets my, my age for you there. Well, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. And it's re- pretty cool that your parents wouldn't allow you to have an NES. Well, I mean, later on, I think I bought it with my own money. Sure, sure. Something. We definitely had it at some point later, but we had the Atari first. They didn't want you to be a juvenile delinquent. <laughs> yeah, rot my brain. Uh, you know, the, the other no, funny the story is that, in those video games. that for whatever reason, and my sister, I don't even think she asked for it, when we got Zelda for Christmas, the gold cartridge, original Legend of Zelda, mm-hmm. uh, for NES, that was her present that year. I see. <laughs> I'm not sure that I even knew what it was either necessarily, or maybe I had heard about it at a friend's house or something. I don't know if my parents got it for her because it had a female name. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know why, but you know, so uh, in that era, that age, you have a little sister. She was better than me at, you know, Mario and some of these things. And it was kind of like as much her thing as it was mine. Uh, but it was really interesting to see how she aged out of it starting at about age nine or 10. Mm. And how I definitely didn't. <laughs> no, not yet. Uh, and, you know, my friends, my teenage friends, you know, like, oh, yeah, my six, 16-year-old guys were driving our cars around town. We come back to my house to play Tempest, right? Sure. <laughs> like, uh, she is definitely not with her teenage friends in that era coming back to a house to play a video game, right? <laughs> I still play video games to some degree. I have much less time as a father of three and a, a busy video game developer. Sure. Uh, that I'd like to maybe or that I, you know, just the reality of my life, but... Mm. As far as I'm aware, she does not play any. <laughs> Maybe not even Candy Crush on her phone. Yeah, wow. Not at all. Wow. <laughs> she has fond memories, though. Of uh, course. Foot, foot, footy pajamas in the that's basement good. with her brother. That's great. <laughs> that's wonderful. That's that's what it's all about. You know, it's just another game. When I talk to Ralph Barry, he's like, you know, this is gaming. We've been doing gaming as humans forever. Right. And it's just another form of uh, of playing games. And the, uh, oh, the, uh, that Zelda cartridge is still at my parents' house in Ohio. <laughs> the NES is still there. And if you plug in the Zelda cartridge, you will find uh, my sister and my save games wow. still on there because wow. the battery has not died yet. Wow, that's great. <laughs> Maybe one day you'll finish it. She was Link, and I think my character was called Sync. Oh, that's funny. Uh-oh. Boy, the, the machine lasted this long. But, uh... <laughs> I hear a sucking sound. <laughs> Magic suck is, uh, is beginning to suck, actually. We never made that joke. <laughs> Jason Ward, thank you so much for being with us again, and thanks for coming back, and thanks for telling us about your new games. And uh, yes, absolutely, and yeah. Well, you know, we didn't even get to talk about, and we're not going to do it now because we're out of time. But uh, that whole uh, public domain versus copyright versus uh, artist rights versus besmirching your name in public debacle. Maybe after it's all blown over, and I have a better perspective on it. Where can people read about this at slash r? Uh, <laughs> the best place to read about it. I have links to it in my most recent Twitter at Jason Rohr, J A S O N R O H R E R tweeting about it with some regularity recently. So if you look back at my Twitter history, you can find links to the story of what's going on right on. Um, Yeah. It's a sad state. It's more me doing things a different way and Mm -hmm. then trying to figure out what that actually means. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's not, you know, there just aren't precedents for releasing a very popular 
commercial game into the public domain. Right. While it's still being actively developed and, and commercialized by me. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, what, you know, what does that mean? How does that work? Nobody really knows. And kind of just making it up as we go along. And, and, uh, and it gets messy. I mean, all these things, these things always get messy. Even if I did things the normal way, copyright agreements and so on, mm-hmm. even if I was doing that, they're messy. So. Oh, yeah. I know about that from music. So you release in the common domain. I release uh, into the... Um, creative Commons, maybe? Yeah, Creative Commons. That's yeah. how our shows get released under Creative Commons. Now, on my music, I don't care if anybody does my music. I'm not ashamed of my music. Do my music all you want, but you can't release your music under my name. I have a copyright for Trapdoor, and people are releasing music under my name, directly or indirectly. Right. Because so, many of them know that I own the copyright to that name, which was well, I not guess I easy would, for I me just, to do. Just to, clar- just to clarify, I've been... I've been uh, knee deep in this stuff for like an uh, entire week. And I've had lots of lawyer type people talking to me about, you know, not, not professionally, mm-hmm. but just people who have studied this stuff as well in my forums and so on. I think <laughs> that right, right, probably right. what you're talking about is trademark there. Um, so trapdoor would be a trademark name, which is the name under which you're doing business as a musician or putting your work out. And, and the concern is if somebody else uses that name in the world of music, Obviously, there's Trapdoor is probably the name of a book publisher, probably also the name of a restaurant somewhere. That's okay. Not confusing. No. Right? But if, if a musician goes and starts using the name Trapdoor, or if I start calling myself Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, uh, that's a trademark issue, right? Because it's like, oh, all of a sudden, everyone's confused. Is this by the real Nine Inch Nails? Is this by the real Trapdoor? And so... Uh, you know, it's interesting, like these differences, right? Copyright versus trademark. And people, a lot of people are telling me, well, Jason, yes, you put your stuff in the public domain. What you really wanted to do was trademark the name One Hour, One Life, uh-huh. right? Um, because I did say to people, hey, you know, yeah, you can make your own version of this, whatever. You could even call it One Hour, One Life. And maybe that is the source of the confusion, the fine hair that you're splitting there where you're saying, yes, my music, they can do whatever they want with. They can't do anything with my name, though. Right. right? Legally, they can't stuff. release digital versions of my music, but I, I don't mind if they do. I don't mind if a band does my songs because, like you, I would like that to be part of uh, the community, part of the, the world give that to the world right right but yes well, and, people and, and, and so what you talk about if a, if, if a band does your songs i mean this is all these are all such interesting issues right mm-hmm. if a band does your songs that doesn't mean they literally take your recording of the song and stick it on their album right that's true <laughs> what, what you mean what you mean is hey they made a cool cover of my song right yeah send me five I, bucks and i'm good i agree is amazing and cool and it'd be almost silly of you to try to stop them from doing that, right? There isn't a lot of really good reason to stop a band from covering your song. Sure. I just don't think there is. I think it is probably actually would be harmful to you as a musician to stop that and look at all the versions of Bob Dylan songs that are out there. Mm. And yes, maybe you got royalties for all of them or gave permission in every case, but it's like the more the merrier in terms of the song's notoriety and so on. Um, And and so the thing though is um, when we're dealing with a more specific work, like a a very specific drawing or my very specific video game, which works in a very specific way and has these very specific characters and very specific art and very specific music all kind of wedded together. It's not so much, hey, someone to cover my video game or some Japanese developer going to make their own spin on it or their own version, like kind of like Mr. Do um, is a spin on Dig Dug. This is like, what if somebody takes and makes a game that's exactly (laughs) like yours with your music, your drawings, your game design, it works exactly the same as yours. It's called the same thing as yours. And they release it under their label and kind of claim that they made it. Well, okay. It is in the public domain, technically, in terms of copyright law and so on. That's allowed, right? Uh, you know, But at the same time, it is kind of a misleading thing to be doing. <laughs> there are limits to public domain. 
the thing I wanted to suggest to you was that, uh, and I'm sure, like you said, everyone has suggestions, but there are copyright lawyers that work pro bono for musicians, and they're located in almost every state. And right. I'm not sure if that type of copyright might be able to fall into uh, something that they might be able to help out with or at least give good direction. But they are right, available right. for free. And that's like I spent you spent a lot of money to get a copyright and the copyright on the name trap or trademark copyright. They're sort of interchangeable. There's no copyright says banned. So right. mine's for digital release records and uh, and like that. There's another one for videos. There's another copyright I would need to get for T-shirt sales. There's like four or five different copyrights that, that w I would need to get to cover a band, and that's just too expensive. I couldn't do that. So right, right. I only have the number four, I think it is. <laughs> right. Well, so it's interesting also that uh, as far as trademark is concerned, just registering it on, in a given domain of commercial enterprise is not enough, right? You actually have to be actually operating. Like you could say, I'm going to come up with the name balloon burger mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> for a hamburger restaurant. Yes. And I'm going to register it saying, uh, with as it was just, it was essentially as I just read today, an intent to start doing commercial activity under that name. Mm -hmm. You can register that ahead of time before you do, uh, to sort of stake your claim. Now, if you never actually start selling hamburgers under the name balloon burger, <laughs> And Which, and somebody why else. Why wouldn't you? That's what I well, want to know. I, you know what? I just made it up. Right? <laughs> Thinking squeeze burger, habit burger, crush burger, balloon burger. Yes, balloon burger. Dig dogs, balloon uh, burgers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you never actually do, then your trademark is not valid, right? So, um, you know, or if you if you do for a while and then stop for decades. And then somebody else comes along and sees a, it's essentially a lapsed trademark, right? Because nobody's right. currently doing business exactly, under his name yeah. anymore. It's We Talk Games, video game review show, 100% game talk, 0% filler, only on We Talk Games. Come on, We Talk Games, go! I just found out today that the word popsicle... Yeah, I, I, uh, my, my, I was writing Popsicle in a Reddit post and the spell checker was trying to get me to capitalize it. And that got me to look it up and it's been trademarked since 1905 when some Popsicle company came up with that name and started selling frozen things on a stick under that name. Yeah, yeah. And, and if you look on any package for any po other Popsicles, they call them ice pops or something or frozen right. stick treats or whatever. Right, rocket pop. Um, and so, but, you know, Popsicle, of course, is, is a common term now, mm -hmm. just like Kleenex or something. Just so like it's Rambo. become generic. Yeah, it's become it's become generic. But anyway, it's it's interesting to think that uh well it is a pretty clever popsicle is pretty clever. It's kinda like an icicle combined with pop, right? Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. If you go to any grocery store, there are popsicles being sold under the name popsicle brand. Mm -hmm. And so they're maintaining their trademark. If they went out of business for a while, a good example might be Twinkie. <laughs> yeah. Uh if t Twinkies aren't being made anymore. And it goes a long enough time with nobody using that name to produce uh, sponge cake snacks. Uh, <laughs> then I think you'd have a pretty good case for starting to use it yourself and re-registering it. Uh, so you got to be careful there. That's what my, my point is that you got to be careful if you are doing it for digital videos and these kinds of things that you're actually engaging in that activity oh, yeah. um, and not just squatting there, right? Yeah. But <laughs> even if I didn't register it and I went to register it and the registration department in the United States said, oh, that's already under registration, mm -hmm. then you can, if you've been doing business under that, if you can prove that you released this before. Yes, um, priority. Yes. Priority. You can make your claim for that. And, 
there was another band called Trapdoor Social, and fortunately, they... And I think they, I've heard of them, actually. Yeah, they, they really, they're like a boy band, I don't know. They copyrighted it like a month before I was able to copyright Trapdoor, because I didn't copyright it for years and years. I started back in 80, in 87, under that name. And, you know, we, we had television shows, we had uh, comic books, and all this other stuff, so I could easily prove that I've been doing business under that name and it's been available on the internet since the year 2000 and et cetera, et cetera. So they knew that. Wait, so are you, a, you, are you a cheeky band serious about the roots of rock and roll? Is that you? No. <laughs> are you uh, is a song called Holy Truth? No. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, see what I mean? <laughs> Uh-oh, you got, you got people horning in on yep, you here. That's what I deal with. Trapdoor Live at the Miami Shark Bar? Nope. Uh oh. Yeah. There's a lot. And oh, is it is it is it two words or one word? Two words, but that does, oh, see that doesn't I did matter. One word. See that doesn't matter. <laughs> that's too con that's too confusing. But because trapdoor social was called trapdoor social, I said we could have this dual exist clause type of thing. I can't remember exactly what it's called, but it's the right that two people could share something because they won't get confused. Because okay, what about a song called Stars? No. Song of uh, Love. In Your Smoky Little Room? No. Song of Love, Intergalactic Bump Music, Disco Punk. That's the trap door. All right. Well, you got some uh, defending to do here. Sir. I know I do. I know. <laughs> so you're, you might be in worse shape than I am. I'm in much worse shape. I don't think <laughs> no, I I'm can saying in terms of having people, in terms of having people take this name of yours. It's so and, stupid. Uh, I mean, you go on iTunes and you, you type in trap door in iTunes and we come up. What, what the fuck are you naming your band that for? Right. You know, what's wrong with you? <laughs> We've had a presence there since the digital music started. I was back on uh, mp3.com. I was right, there right. in the top 10. Oh, here I found you. You're this is Wiggly's World of Media. Yep. Mm -hmm. All right. Gotcha. All right. So, but you're, yeah, several, several spots down here on, uh, on Google. Yeah. Unfortunately. Anyway, good. I'm just saying, uh, the, my, my fear really, um, to quickly summarize what happened, these mobile developers have taken some of my source code, all of my visual artwork that goes into the game, all these hand drawn objects. 2,800 of them or whatever that I've made over the past four years or so and on the music and uh, the sound effects and everything, right? And the title, One Hour, One Life. And mm -hmm. they've released a mobile version that is not specifically authorized by me but is allowed because it's in the public domain and they did email me ahead of time and I said it's in the public domain, you're allowed to do this. And then over time we have had some sort of friendly agreements by email where they're like, hey, you know, we want to make sure that you're happy with what we're doing and whatever. And so I've made some requests about you know making sure that they don't take full credit for it and pretend that they made it whole cloth yeah. and that um that they don't um represent that it's your, your they game. don't imply that i'm involved with it right. they make it clear that this is an unofficial port and not my work because there's been a lot of confusion about that and that confusion continues to grow most recently in china where they're trying to put out a new version in china uh, which just turns out to be an incredible onerous process it seems because the chinese government actually hand approves every mm. program i don't know it's this whole thing where you have to have like have a license from three years ago because the government hasn't handed out any new licenses recently for new games. Wow. And companies are shifting licenses from old games to start releasing new games and this whole, this whole thing. And you have to jump through all these hoops. So right now the game in the Chinese version is free, free to play as a demo because they're still waiting for the approval from the government. I see. Um, but when, they, when that demo came out and became extremely popular in China, because China's a huge market, mm -hmm. 600,000 people in China followed this Chinese game. Oh my. Potentially hundreds of thousands of people have played it. All of the text and marketing and wording in, inside and outside the game 
made no mention of the fact that it was an unofficial adaptation. No mention of me. No mention of the fact that they didn't make the game whole cloth. Took sole authorship credit. In fact, I found out that their publisher has filed a trademark claim in China for the name. Oh, yeah. International uh, uh, trademark's a whole other uh, thing. Well, no, but even so, it's like <laughs> yeah. they're trademarking a name I invented. It's horrible. And in the Chinese version of it, the most accurate Chinese translation. And, oh, they also have registered a copyright registration in China for the game. Did they explain in that registration that it's based on mostly on a public domain work and so on? I, I'm not sure. Mm. But they have copyright notices all over the place, giving themselves sole copyright claim to everything being shown on the screen on their website, which is full of my artwork, even screenshots I made. Wow. <laughs> They've taken my, you know, my screenshots, my characters, whatever, and said and put a copyright notice under them with their name. Well, you know what um, that means. There's a better way to fight that. Team up with a mobile publisher, and since it's public domain, they can make the same game. Yeah, and go no, again I and battle the battle them. <laughs> I could, I could, but I just you know, I I don't generally team up with people. I don't generally sure. farm stuff out like that. It's yeah. a lot of work to get a game that's not meant for mobile working on mobile. Oh, yeah. the interface, you know. So these people did a good job. I mean, the mobile version is well made. It's a well made piece of software. They tried to solve the mouse and keyboard issue on a touchscreen the best they could, mm-hmm. and you know, it has become popular. So the question is, in the future, going forward. Could there be a time when the vast majority of the people on the planet think they originated this and don't know the truth? Yeah. And it is not just them covering my song or kind of riffing on it or making a collage or a derivative work. I mean, it is literally a very direct translation of if you took screenshots of the two things and you kind of blurred out the user interface at the top, the little bar, because they had to squeeze some things in a little differently. But the center part of the screenshot where the graphics and the characters, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Mm. If you look at videos on YouTube of both versions, unless you're looking very closely, you'll think you won't be able to tell which version you're looking at. So it is the same game. Oh my. You start as a screaming baby where you hear my voice. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess your sound you know, effects make, for all the yeah, yeah, and so everything else. You get born, you hear my uh, interpretation of a crying baby, you uh, you know, get named by your mother, you live you starve to death, you live, you know, all the, everything, every little thing. Yeah. So in that situation, it becomes very, very confusing. And then what is the, you know, is it a, is it a trademark issue? Well, if they did exactly the same thing, but used a different name, Mm. I don't think that would change anything. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's really a trademark issue. I don't think that would even solve the problem. Even when I trademark one hour, one life, if it's exactly the same name under a different title, that'd be even more confusing. That would seem even (laughs) more like they were the originators and I was a knockoff. Yeah. I don't it's know. Complex. I don't think there is. Yeah. There is not an established answer here because no one's ever. Uh, you no know, one's ever. It, no one's ever been stupid enough to do what I've done. Yeah. <laughs> really, I mean, no, but really, I, no, it's like I, I everyone's coming a, to me like, dude, you, of course, it's this got, of course, this stuff, stuff was going to happen. Yeah. What did you expect? Yeah. Uh, well, you know so, what it is, then the news. You got to get on the news. Got to get with the gaming magazines. Yeah, no, and I have been doing that to some Chinese gaming yeah. magazines. The truth is not protected by copyright, right? Right, <laughs> exactly. Like, the truth is the truth. It's like, so, um, but anyway, there's still dangers there, even just with that. It's like, okay, if they trademark it, if they copyright it and establish that, and I don't contest it, then if I ever someday down the line decide, you know, five years from now that I'd like to make a Chinese version, then I'm going to be trying to show the government, hey, I have rights to publish this game in China too. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, wait a minute. These other guys have been had mm. this game published for five years. Where were you that whole time, yeah. dude? Like... Uh, this trademark is well established here now. So the, the idea that you could get trademarked, have your trademark taken out from underneath you for a name you invented, for a game you created, to be used by somebody else to promote exactly the same game. 
It's too it's bad. Like, oh too bad Ralph God. Bear isn't still alive. You could commiserate so the parallels with, with the parallels with Trapdoor only go so far, right? Because it's, right. it's almost like if somebody took all the Trapdoor music and released it under the name Trapdoor in China uh-huh. and claimed that it wasn't Wiggly, it was Squiggly, you know, Squiggly, <laughs> and became <laughs> hugely know. successful. There are probably Trapdoors and Trapdoor Social Club and these other things that are have become more successful than you and maybe dwarfed the public's reception of this name but at least they're doing it with their own stuff yeah yeah <laughs> so it's, it's it's really funny interesting mess but yet i still believe in the public domain right like i don't want to stop anybody yeah. from making a commercial version of my game that's not the point yeah i just you know i, I just want to make sure the situation is clear to people and the people aren't lying about it especially not lying to the chinese government i mean that's yeah that's a big problem if that precedent is, is established there. So there's also the idea, and this might be something that you might want to look into just yourself, separate from copyright in Europe and other countries, and even in China, potentially, there's the issue, the idea of moral rights, mm-hmm. um, which mm-hmm. is copyright expires, right? Trademark has to be actively used in a commercial setting in order to be maintained. Copyright expires 70 years after the death of the author, 95 years after yeah, creation now. for for a work made for hire. You know, in, for a corporation like Disney, yeah. you know, Mickey Mouse and these things, those expire 95 years. Yeah, after it used to be 50, created. but fucking uh, Sonny Bono, yeah. he made it ni- 95 now. It's ridiculous. Yeah. But anyway, 70, for my, in my case, I'm an individual making this game. So it's 70 years after I croak. So it's even longer than 95, I guess, if I make it work early enough in my life and I live long enough. Anyway, that expires. And after that expires, I have no copyright claim, even if I'm still alive. Well, no, I can't be still alive 70 years after my death. (laughs) (laughs) If I live forever, copyright lasts forever, interestingly enough. Nobody in my family, no no heirs or whatever, would have any claim to stop anybody from commercializing the thing 70 years after my death. Mm. But moral rights don't expire in the countries that have them. And moral rights are the right to a truthful claim of authorship which is, I can't take this public domain work and claim I wrote it. Mm-hmm. I cannot say, I, see. I wrote Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Lewis Carroll did not. <laughs> I see, I see. That's, that's not violating Lewis Carroll's copyright, because it's long since expired, it's in the public domain, but it would be violating his moral right, yeah. which is which never expires, because it's like the truth about who wrote Alice in Wonderland will be the truth forever. Yes. And so that right to not have your work mutilated or modified or corrupted in some form that you didn't approve of or essentially all about the reputation of the author, mm-hmm. right? Here's this author's work. You can only get an unabridged version of it if it's labeled as such, which means that I could not publish Alice in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll and drastically alter everything inside of it, even though it's in the public domain, without making that crystal clear. Sure. Right? And so the United States doesn't really have moral rights. They kind of say, well... That's all kind of handled by libel and slander law. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of saying, well, you, you guys are libeling me. If you claim you made this game whole cloth, that's a lie, and it affects my reputation as a designer, right? That's true. Um, yeah. But everybody has their opinion about whether or not that's even the case. I mean, <laughs> there's no case law here, really. So it's, it's kind of a big gray area, and I don't plan on going to court over it. <laughs> yeah. Which would be maybe years, if not maybe a decade of bloody legal struggle. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, Easy. you know, I mean, I don't know what you're doing to um, I'm to protect to talk your trademarks. To you. I'm to, oh, I, I have a company that watches it every month. I pay them to watch for things like this. And of course, so they go like, and send they go and send cease and desist letters yeah, to people. Yeah. Yeah. But if that person doesn't take it down, like we asked, then I would have to take them to court. And even though they would have to pay all the court fees because I would win, 
they probably never would would pay, you know. And there I am. Well, do you have or, so one of these bands? One of these bands I found uh, was in Ireland. So do you have international trademarks? Uh, that's unknown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so maybe that's part of the issue here. But you know, it's like, yeah, what do you really do? I mean, like, okay, one of these bands, Trapdoor, has the song "Stars," which is was posted in 2015. So I'm sure your company has been sending them letters. I'm sure, just as sure that they're ignoring them. And then it's like, well, were you, you know, it's more wiggly, about, are you, uh, wiggly, are you bluffing or are you not bluffing? You gotta, you gotta, it's more and, about and, 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 emailing. The truth is, you, it's really hard to pursue these things, right? Yeah. The thing that you would go after is the people that are releasing it, like iTunes or Amazon or uh, Google Music or something like that. That's, that's yeah. And so would, then you're filing, a ta- you're filing a trademark takedown notice. Right. Exactly. Um, and whether they do but, it or not. It's up to them. Yeah, and then you, but then there's also this idea of this Hydra, you know, where YouTube will take it down once and then it pops up on a different channel. You got to keep taking, you know, it's this endless like. And also, you know, I'm really scared whenever I have them talk to iTunes about it that my other albums don't get ripped down too. Okay, well, then the other issue I would just highlight here is that um, unfortunately, Trapdoor. <laughs> It's not that unique of a name. No, it's not. Um, but so that's, no one ever you used have a it. Real, you, it's what, you, it's what uh, you know, in 1987, there was no trap door except us. Right. It's a good name. It's a clever name. It was meant it's, to be uh, funny because it was so oh, well, obvious, and yet no one had hmm. ever used it. Right, right. But you do have you know, sort of an uphill battle to defend that name, sure. right? Yeah. Um, whereas One Hour, One Life, <laughs> if I were to trademark it or whatever, it's, it's a phrase that... Is not in common usage at all. Right. You know, I appreciate what you're going through. That one, it's got to be, uh, it's got to be pretty frustrating sometimes. Yeah, especially when you know you're begging for your food, like you do <laughs> in one hour, one life. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Bring it all full circle. That's right, brother. Hey, thank you so much. Oh well, no, no, wait, wait, wait. What, one, what more, one more quick thing. Yes. One, one, I, I got sucked back in. Yes, sir. One more thing. The Chinese version of One Hour, One Life, which is currently free as a free demo because they don't have pr- approval from the government yet, you don't have to beg for your food. Oh, you can when buy you get it. Down to zero, when you get down to zero hunger bars and you're about to starve to death, an ad pops up <laughs> saying, will you watch this ad video? If you do, we'll give you five extra hunger points. <laughs> oh, my. And you know what? That's, what? that's something I wanted to thank you about. I wanted to thank you for releasing a game that you can buy. Right. I wanted to really thank you for that because that's absolute. These pay to plays and and ads to uh, continue and things like that. It's out of control now. There's subscriptions, four dollars a week subscriptions to stupid games. Yeah, <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's like I want to buy a game, take my money to buy a game, and then I have a game. So, I mean, that's another example of what's possible with the public domain, right? Like, yeah. that is definitely not something I'd ever do in one of my own games. I don't like it. I don't like that they did that. Yeah. But they are free They are free to do it because it's in the public domain. Oh. However, they better be damn clear with people who are playing it that I didn't authorize that. <laughs> that's not my choice it's or that's so not my work. so digital media because if they were releasing something physical and charging for it, there's ways to block certain things like that from happening. But when it's digital and it can change with the next release, like you're requesting of them to do, the sky's the limit. You don't have any right, stock right. that shows, oh, this was how it was. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. The, you know, essentially, except for the screenshots I've taken, and I forgot to take some back in a while, mm-hmm. a while ago, there's not really any evidence yeah. that they were misleading anybody. Yeah. 
So that's uh, also interesting. Anyway, uh, thanks. This, this has been great, man. Well, if you like this episode, click on the ad below, and don't forget to ring the bell. <laughs> thanks, Jason. It's always great to yep. talk to you, and I hope it's not another 10 years before we talk again. All right. Excellent. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Now I'm going slow, mom.